The assembly, of course, of the day today is always a thrilling thing that you and I have the privilege on the first day of every week to gather according to the commandment of God, but we do so not only to honor and praise Him, but to encourage one another. May I also say, in addition to those announcements that were mentioned earlier, let's not forget, ladies, about the Tuesday evening uh, ladies' Bible class, 6 o'clock p.m. here at the building. I know that as you continue your study of authority and the particular application that we'll see somewhat in the lesson today, you'll be encouraged and certainly edified in the things of the Word of God in light of that study. So again, 6 o'clock, day after tomorrow, here at the building. The lesson this morning, as you can tell, is entitled, in fact, in the way that connects, as we have done now for nine times previous, each of the studies that, that the ladies have on that Tuesday, we devote that Sunday lesson just prior to that to some elaboration of that same set of ideas. So I trust today that you and I will be encouraged as we discuss the biblical silence of women. And we do that for the following reason. It is a Bible topic. It is not that one inserts this idea into the Word of God. It is not that we simply have some particular matter of choice to discuss it ourselves. Given that the Bible does include these matters, it's our desire to understand them and our desire to, in fact, implement them with quickness. Every time you and I give thought to a lesson, perhaps like this one, at least in the culture in which we now live, we are constantly bombarded by those who would wish to remove entirely the concept of gender. You and I know there are those in high places seeking to enforce in the educational establishment of our land that children get to choose what gender they are. That is nonsense of the highest order, and we all know that. We have the Bible that sets before us the concept of gender. As far back as Deuteronomy 22.5, the God of the Old Testament asserted, a man is not supposed to dress like a woman, and a woman is not supposed to dress like a man. Even in that ancient era, they were to be clearly distinguished, and they were to be understood as being the genders which, in fact, God had made for each one of them. But that idea, of course, finds some appreciation even in the days of the New Testament. As you and I close that slide, certainly one of our focus points of the lesson today will give some thought to the assemblies. But may I suggest that we discuss something else first. It is a matter that it would seem to me we ought not overlook in any quickness at all. Women in the ancient world often were looked down upon. They were often treated as very much second-class individuals. In fact, even as late as the days of the Jews, a Jewish male would get up every morning, and as a part of his morning prayers, he'd pray, I thank thee, God, that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. That's the way Jewish men 2,000 years ago would typically consider and think about these matters. And so even among them, there was in many ways a tendency to frown upon and to denigrate, almost insultingly so, the nature of womanhood. But I would like to invite you to give some thought to the book that you're holding in your lap. What a different message it brings. It has always elevated the status of women, and it has done so in a very clear and directed way. Look, for instance, at some of these matters. 
Aren't you impressed that in the Word of God, woman holds a rather honored and distinguished place? May I invite you to note Galatians 4 verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. Now that verse highlights the fact that this great Savior of the entirety of the human family, that the Messiah would in fact be born of a woman. It would be through the agency of a woman that He would be brought into the world. In Luke 7, verses 36 and following, when Jesus entered into one of the publican's houses, and there a woman appeared and she washed His feet with an alabaster box of ointment in her own tears and dried them with her own hair. The Lord didn't rebuke her. In fact, He praised her for all time in light of the element of service that she had rendered. Beyond that one, in John 4, verses 1 and following, you and I remember fairly early on in the Lord's ministry, He made an especial effort to speak with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Even His own apostles were rather shocked that He talked to a woman. The Lord considered her valuable. The Lord considered her a person worthy of the message of the gospel that He shared with her. He didn't shun her, but rather took that opportunity to use her and to teach her in such a way she was a rather powerful influence, it would seem, for others in that same town. One last observation in John 19, 25. Even while, of course, He was on the cross, Jesus had concern for His mother. And there was also an observation about other women who were a part of those who ministered to Him. I say all of that to say that this book does not insult the ancient plight of women. It elevated them to the rightful status that God would wish them to appreciate. To highlight that even further, have you ever noticed that in that ancient world, of course, the man was often appreciated. He had the right to divorce his wife. And secular society didn't really look at it much from the other perspective. Have you ever noticed the Bible stated it both ways? In Matthew's version, the man had right to divorce his wife. In Mark's account, the woman had right to divorce her husband. So if either one was sexually unfaithful, that one had the right to divorce. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible elevates and particularly lists the very stature of women in that same regard. Two more points. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, As you and I appreciate Paul's inspired presentation of these ideas, he rather carefully asserted that there's a powerful interdependence of man and woman. I would invite you to notice the explicit way that's worded. It's rather compelling. 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 11. It reads, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. In the Lord. That is to say, each one provides a necessary element in completing the whole. And so it is. That challenges us, certainly in regard to the last two. There is a powerful equality when it comes to salvation. A female has to do exactly the same things a male does in obeying the gospel. It's the same challenge of belief and repentance and confession and baptism and faithful living. She isn't expected anything less than he is, and he isn't expected anything more than she is. That kind of equality 
suggest one final thing. Although the Bible does elevate women in these regards, it does make a distinguishment of the roles, R-O-L-E-S, that the two genders play in the public services of the church. To develop that point, let's highlight the hierarchy presented in 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 3 of that chapter, we find these rather profound statements. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. There is a divinely established hierarchy, and there are no exceptions to it. It is that which is apparent by these considerations. We just noted in that verse, and it presents to us this way, there's God, there's Christ, there's man, and there's woman. It is not to say, and this is a powerful point we should each understand very well, as you give thought to that hierarchy, does that mean that one is inferior to the one above it? All we have to do is answer this. Is Christ inferior to God? We know that answer is no. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse number 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. So you'll notice his equality with God is powerfully asserted. So the fact that that hierarchy exists does not mean Jesus is inferior to God. And by the same token, apply that to man and woman. Although the man is the head of the woman, that does not mean that the woman's inferior to the man. It simply has thought to the existence of roles which God wishes to be respected. These roles for understanding the nature of what would be best conforming to carrying out His will. The next point on our slide then is this. What about the fashion in which man and woman came to be? We know God made the man first. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, Genesis 2-7. But of course, woman was taken from the side of man, from the rib of man, Genesis 2, verses 18 and following. Later on in the New Testament, Paul would use that to say that the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. All of those ideas form a basis, a foundation for us to move a bit forward and make application of these things in the following way. Let's do it in the context of the assemblies. You and I realize, as often as the New Testament, as often as the Bible presents it, what a special time it is to reflect on the assemblies of God's people. In the Old Testament era, the Israelites were expected to assemble. You and I remember that well. There were certain things that had to be done, and they met at certain occasions, and they carried out certain activities when they came to those points of assembly. As you and I transition into the New Testament, God still considers the assemblies of inestimable importance. The Bible describes it as an egregious sin to look with triviality upon the assemblies to not attend them, 
even if you do attend to look upon what you're doing while you're there is rather trivial and unimportant, God frowns upon that rather, rather powerfully. Look at some of these verses. In Psalm 122, verse number 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up to the house of the Lord. May I ask, were you glad this morning? Be honest with yourself. Were you glad at the thought of assembling with the saints? If the answer is no, there's a problem. There's an issue. And you need to come to grips with and use the Word of God to help wrestle that evil out of your heart. It should be an element of rather great excitement that you and I can leave behind the mundane matters of the world and gather the people that are marching to heaven with me. And those who I look forward to, of course, being with, those who love the truth of God more than anything else, those assemblies, the idea behind them brings us to the next point. We know that in terms of those assemblies, everything that's done and said needs to be by the authority of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. He dictates with regard to these assemblies. Colossians 3.17 reminds us, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. That, that is our sole wish, our sole desire. Keeping that idea in mind, note what's next. That means then that these assemblies must be in fact presented in such a way that they do so in light of the truth of God, but they do so with all the decency, the decorum, and the order that God demands of them. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 will highlight those particulars, but you and I are simply today wishing to make application in the ways that that slide ends. As I made preparation for this lesson, I took the opportunity to just get on the World Wide Web a moment and just pull up some bulletins of various churches of Christ in various places around our country. Notice I did say Church of Christ. And it wasn't that unusual to see among the listing of those who were serving on a particular Sunday, the person leading the singing might well be a female. A woman might be leading the singing. The person leading the opening prayer, it wasn't that unusual to find a woman's name was listed beside the person leading the opening prayer. The person serving at the Lord's table, either as the one presiding or those serving, it wasn't that uncommon to appreciate it may well have been a woman. The person delivering the sermon on occasion was a woman. Now, we are by no means attempting to insult in any way the intelligence or capabilities of women. All we're asking is, what does the Bible say? If God approves a woman doing these things, far be it from anybody then to refuse them that right to do it. But if the God of heaven has made decrees, if He's made statements, if in His holy word He is included those passages that would call that into question and furthermore even assert that it's not to be done, then you and I wishing to simply do that which God commands would never wish to place a woman in that position. And a woman who wishes to be godly would never want to place herself in that position. It is with that in mind, let's go to the next slide. And let's turn to some verses in the Word of God 
that do speak to the very subject before us today. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. While you're turning to that location, let me ask you to notice that, of course, this was in that particular setting in which the spiritual gifts were under discussion. And as Paul gave instructions about not only the employment of and the attitude toward, but also the particulars of how it was to be set forth, he had much to say without going to read all of that chapter. Let me come to verse number 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, I've actually included some of that verse for your consideration in mind today. We live at a time when you may recall the feminist movement of the 19, later 60s and especially the 1970s, in which it was proclaimed rather vocally about the absolute equality in every way of a woman as it relates to a man. So they were told, and so we still are told, anything that a man can do, a woman can do just as well. Now, our question might well be, as we seek to make application of that to the assembly, so maybe a man is leading the opening prayer, so am I then to appreciate then a woman can do that just as well, in fact, should be given the right to do it just as much. Is that kind of viewpoint a reasonable one? As we come back to this verse before us, let's make a few observations about the interpretation. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Please note the prepositional phrase. Where are we talking about? So this is, again, in the churches. We're talking about some assembly situation. We're not talking about what happens at home. We're not talking about what might happen in the workplace. This is in the churches. And he quickly states, It is not permitted unto them, the word them refers to the women, to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience. That Greek word means subjection, as also saith the law. I've asked you to notice a few particular sentiments. What was happening in Corinth was this. There were women who were equipped with miraculous capabilities. Remember, as the apostles would lay their hands on individuals, both men and women, then bequeathed to them would be the capability of various and sundry miraculous spiritual gifts. Perhaps the speaking in tongues, maybe the gift of prophecy. And so you can well imagine, if a woman had been given, let's say, the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues, then even in the assembly, she might rise and begin to use that gift. Paul reprimanded and in fact gave instruction relative to that and he said, verse 34, it is not permitted. That word means not allowed. Might we all take note, who is it that's doing the, permission, the, the permitting? Who is it that does the allowing? It's not the men of the church. It's not some particular group of people who make the decisions. It's not permitted. That permission is given by God. It is God who has withheld that permission. It is not permitted unto them to speak. How do we know that? 
Look at the way the verse ends. As also saith the law. What law are we talking about? Is it the law coming out of Nashville, Tennessee? The law coming out of Washington, D.C.? Is it the law coming out of the, the United Nations? The law Paul referred to was the law of God. That law emanating really from Old Testament days onward. As also saith the law. It's the will of God then that in the assemblies, women not permitted to speak in some capacity. Let's develop that even more thoroughly. That word silence, as it appears in this verse. Let your women keep silence. Now at this point, you might have a very interesting question. Let's answer it this way. That word in Greek is segeo, and it literally means to hold one's peace. It means to be silent. I might ask you to notice, it does not, in the Word of God, mean absolute, not breathing a single syllable. In those texts in Luke, when it says the apostles held their peace, that only meant that they refused to tell or to speak that which Jesus had told them not to, not, not to tell. In other words, they had seen Him work great miracles, and they had seen Him, and they were convinced that He was the Messiah. But Jesus said, you don't tell anybody yet. That's all that means. Did that mean they didn't talk in any way with respect to any subject? Well, of course not. They carried on other conversations. It's just they purposefully and deliberately did not share this information. And so it is in an assembly. A woman can do the things audibly that God would permit her to do, but with regard to certain things, she must be silent. She must be silent. Let's look at the next one. Thus, in worship, in Bible study, or in other assemblies of the church, women must not exercise authority over the men. We'll see that developed in the passage before us in just a moment. And you may notice that we have to be rather mindful and rather careful of the impression that we might leave in regard to these things. Now, while that verse is before you, and to make that connection rather complete, turn over to 1 Timothy 2, the one that we read this morning. Colonel read this before us just a moment ago. And in this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 is where we'll begin. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now this passage is a sister one to the other one, in that they appear to have a number of things in, in rather strong correspondence. For that reason, here are some appreciations about this one. I began reading in verse number 11, but as a bit of a preparation for it, and at least in connection to it, note verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Would you please give some careful thought to that verse with me? And it might do each of us a rather interesting and valuable note to appreciate the word that appears there. I've asked you to appreciate it on the slide. I will that men pray everywhere. 
I wonder what the significance of the word men is. For you and I know that sometimes the word man, as it appears in the Word of God, really means mankind. It means inclusive of men, inclusive of women, inclusive of both genders. But there are other times that the word man refers to the male, indistinguished to the female. I wonder which one this is. It's the latter. I will therefore that the male pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I freely confess, I have to wonder in great order, as I mentioned earlier, when a woman stands up before an audience and leads that audience in prayer, what do they do with a verse like this one? I will that the males pray everywhere. I do not know. My only suspicion is something I'll mention a bit later in the lesson today. But at this point, let's continue our journey. You and I know that women are commanded by God to pray, right? All Christians should pray, but there's something here about the men leading the prayer. Therefore, in our assemblies, a man will always be selected to lead the prayer. Now, notice it needs to be not just any man. It says he needs to be a man who lifts up holy hands. He needs to be a godly man, a pious man, a man dedicated to the things of truth. So we're not going to invite men whose lives are, shall we say, rather undedicated. It wouldn't be befitting for them to lead an assembly like this in prayer. Furthermore, it says, without wrath and doubting, the life that man leads needs to be such that his character, his godliness, the demeanor he portrays, all of his characteristics are conducive to the fact that he would have right to lead that assembly of people in prayer toward God. But that idea only brings us to verse 11, as you can see on the slide. There's something different about what women and the role that they're allowed to play. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, the text says. And then in explanation, these words are found. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. And therefore, we now see this. And I've tried to highlight it on that slide. God has a different role that He expects the woman to honor and to respect. She is not to be the public presenter over a mixed audience. So a faithful congregation will never invite a woman to lead in prayer, to serve at the table, to deliver the sermon, because that would directly contradict and be forbidden by the verse that is before us this morning. I suffer not a woman to teach. The word suffer means permit. And as Paul, by inspiration, makes that assertion, it's God through him, thus making this particular permission not allowed. I suffer not a woman to teach to, or to usurp authority. There are some who have looked upon that word usurp in a way that's not quite consistent with the Greek wording. If you usurp something, you fight to obtain it. You acquire it. And so there are some who've said, well, if a man gives a woman the right to preach or asks her to do it, she isn't taking the authority from it, he's giving it to her. Is that okay? Absolutely not. 
It's never His authority to give it. In this verse, that authority came from God, and God didn't give that authority to the woman, and He didn't give it to the man to give to her. In that way, you'll notice, but to be in silence. And the word silence here is a different word than the word silence that appeared in that previous 1 Corinthians 14 passage. This word is not segeo. It is hesekiah. And as you can tell, the word means calmness. It means tranquility. It means peacefulness. In other words, we have a portrait of a woman who is submissive and who appreciates and respects that role that God has given to her. No wonder in that light, a few additional comments would be in order. One of which certainly would be this one. A female, thus by decree of God, would not be able to occupy position, with God's approval that is, of authority over a mixed audience of men. Now I suppose if there was a congregation that was all women, that a woman could do the preaching and she could lead the prayers. She, they'd be on, that'd be the only possibility. But if there's any males present, they don't even have to be Christians, any males present, the word for man does not mean Christian, it's any man, then she would not be permitted by God to occupy that role. One last thing. What about this word that appears, teach? I suffer not a woman to teach. That word literally means to deliver a discourse, to deliver a didactic discourse. That's exactly what a sermon is. It's exactly what a Bible class is. And therefore, she would not be allowed by God to do that to an audience of mixed male and female. You and I would certainly then have an interest in the things of God to hold true to these declarations, although our world certainly frowns rather noticeably upon it. As you close that slide with me, in light of what we've studied today, if you look with some care at what some have written about Paul, you'll find some assertions like this. Why is modern society following the words of a man written 2,000 years ago when he was obviously a male chauvinist? He was down on women. That isn't so. On many other occasions, Paul, just as Jesus did, lifted rather high the status and the place of women. But when it came to the assemblies... The God of heaven had dictated these things for him to share. And could I ask you to note this? As far as I'm able to tell, the particular approach that is so often used in our modern day to excuse these verses and, and allow a woman to lead prayer or allow a woman perhaps to deliver the sermon, they make the claim, well, this is only cultural passages. It applied to those people at that time, they say, and it does not apply today. In other words, they put it in the realm only of a cultural need for that city at that time. Is that so? Is that a proper interpretation? All I would ask is let's let the passage do the dictating. According to the passage, what's the reason? Is it cultural or is it more than that? 
Paul gives two reasons in this verse. Let's look at both of them. Are these reasons for these particular statements cultural? In 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 12, it says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Question, Paul, is the reason for the submission of women related in any way to the culture in Corinth, or in Ephesus, or in Philippi, or in Troas, or in any one of the other cities of the ancient world? Is it related, Paul, to the particulars of the ancient Roman Empire? And Paul rather boldly says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Please notice with me that the reasoning that Paul gives for this particular statement about the subordination of women in the assemblies has nothing to do with culture. Absolutely nothing. In fact, it stretches far back beyond any cultures to the original creation. Adam was first formed and then Eve. Reason number one, there was something to be said about the order of the creation in regard to man and woman. God created the man first, and He created the woman out of man. In fact, that's the very meaning of the word woman. W-O-M-A-N literally means taken out of man. I've often wondered why the feminist movement doesn't try to change the word used to refer to women. If that word literally means taken out of man, it looks like they'd want to change the word. Maybe they hadn't realized what it means yet. At any rate, a part of the original creation specified that the man was formed first, and that gave him an element that made it unreasonable, that made it improper for the woman to usurp authority over him in the assemblies. I might also say in the home, remember the man's the head of the wife, the husband's the head of the wife. There's also a sense even in that realm when again the woman is not to usurp authority over him. Adam was formed first. But that isn't the only thing. Look at the next verse, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. As you and I reflect on that original fall in the Garden of Eden. You and I remember, who did the serpent approach? He didn't approach the man. He approached the woman. It was Eve who she knew very well what God had taught. And Satan attacked her. He didn't attack the man. Now later he would attack the man through her. After he had, in fact, tempted her and she succumbed to it, then in his love for and his choice to pursue the things of the wife, then of course Adam sinned too, no doubt about that. But Paul would word it like this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. I stated that this way on the slide. Eve believed the devil. You'll notice the man simply followed his wife. Now that does highlight the power a woman has. She can influence greatly her husband and her children. You know, as here, Adam fell for her. But keeping all that in mind, those two reasons are the ones Paul listed. It had nothing to do with culture, absolutely nothing. Today, 
though we live 2,000 years this side of the events of the life of Jesus, we still would wish to appreciate the unchanging infallibility of the Word of God, and it's our desire to be consistent with it. Let's close our lesson like this. The woman's role is such that today we first began by highlighting the Bible elevates the place of women. God honors them, He values them, He esteems them. But He has given roles for both the man and the woman, and those roles are different. When it comes to the woman in the assemblies, she's not permitted to usurp authority over the man. She's not permitted to teach in a way that is over him. That is what God has declared. And it's our desire to lovingly be submissive to that which He has stated. I know that our current society would almost heckle and mock us for believing this. But what man thinks doesn't change what God says. And it's going to remain this way in faithfulness until the end of time. Today, as you and I balance the things of our life and we examine our life, are we living in harmony with the Word of God? It may be that this issue is not a trouble for us, but may I suggest it is for congregations not far from here. There are congregations in Nashville who are among those who have the bulletins I listed earlier. <laughs> That's less than 80 miles away. We shouldn't think this is only in New York City or Chicago, Illinois, or perhaps in some distant place. It's not far from here, and it will continue to impact and affect congregations perhaps closer and closer to you and me. May you and I love the Lord and love His Word and strive to simply be those people who honor His Word thoroughly and completely. Today, if there's anyone in this audience who isn't right with God, your life is not consistent with the truth of the Word of God today. Won't you love Him and His Word enough to respond in a positive way? As an alien sinner, you must believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. We'd be delighted to help you in that way today. If you, though, have known the life of Christianity and all the blessing and favor that comes with it, but you have stumbled, you've fallen, you've begun to live in a way that's brought reproach on you and upon the church and maybe on the name of Christ, you know that isn't right. Jesus calls you to come back to faithfulness today. And if we could assist you by praying on your behalf toward God... If you will repent and confess those things, He has promised to forgive them. Today, if there's anyone that would wish to come, don't delay, but come now while together we stand and while we sing.